Hello and welcome to GradCast. Back in August, myself, Roger Hudson, and my co-host, Yimin Chen, were on location at the Western University Graduate Symposium on Music 2017. And over the next 30 minutes, you'll get to hear two different interviews from students from across the United States and Canada speaking about their research on music. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to GradCast. I am Roger Hudson, and joined by my co-host, Yimin Chen. Hi. And today we are joined by Rachel Avery from McGill University. Hello, Rachel. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you very much for being here with us. Rachel here, is here uh, presenting on her research. Uh, would you like to speak a little bit about what brought you here uh, to, to speak about your research today? Sure. So, yes, I'm presenting at the Music Graduate Students Conference, and I'm talking about a set of songs by the composer Modest Mazorsky, who is a late 19th century Russian composer. And I'm looking at issues of what a composer who was a realist, who didn't believe in spirits and ghosts, was doing composing a set of songs that seems to kind of present a, a spirit, a specter of death and how he's dealing with these issues and maybe resolving some of these tensions of spiritual belief and realist thought in his music. Oh, cool. So the only Mazarski I'm familiar with is pictures at an exhibition, which, if I recall, is also related to, to the death of one of his friends. Is this, um, is, I guess in this way, is death something that was on Mazarski's mind a lot? At this time, it certainly was. So there are some composers who, you know, have just been haunted by death their whole lives, who've had people die around them all the time. Uh, but this was a particular point in Mazorsky's life where he had lost his mother pretty recently and wrote a composition for her in her memory. And yeah, Victor Gartman, who is an artist, is who he wrote pictures at an exhibition mm -hmm. in memoriam. And then he lost another friend, uh, Nadezhda Puchinina, who is a real mentor to him and kind of a mother figure as well. And after that, he was just completely devastated. And through all these deaths, his alcoholism had gotten worse, and he was not doing too well. So he tried to compose a piece for Pochinina, an epitaph, and actually couldn't bring himself to finish it. He left it incomplete. Oh, wow. Wow, very existential artist. So how do these, in, um, these experiences, uh, do they influence the piece that you're talking about at the presentation today? I am arguing that they do. Uh, so I am taking a line of argument that's inspired by Evelina Boskowska's arguments about Chopin. And with Chopin, she's saying that his trouble dealing thoroughly with grief and with death and with fear comes up elsewhere in his creative output under different guises. And these are kind of haunting presences. Mm -hmm. And so she identifies ways that we can find hauntings in music and musical features that signal a haunting presence, uh, like time being out of joint is a really big one, where things, the sound of it, the meter of it, just gets a little bit out of order for a little while, while something is kind of breaking through. So I'm arguing in these songs that while Mazorsky as a realist was trying to focus on the emotions of the characters in the songs, he elsewhere, especially when it's just a piano playing, allows some of these hauntings to come through. So he's balancing his realist concerns with these sort of haunting presences that are emerging in his piano writing. 
what kind of themes uh, do you end up exploring that come out of that uh, dissonance between uh, his music? So one that is, uh, I think, a really key way to understand how all of this is fitting together is the idea of fantastic realism. And this is something that was proposed by a literary scholar, Vinit Squeed, who proposes this as a term to understand works. Uh, for instance, Dostoevsky has a story uh, called Bobok that I think is a great parallel because it is taking a drunken person wandering through the cemetery having alcohol-induced hallucinations. So that's something that's very real. And these hauntings, these hallucinations, are the spirits of the deceased in the cemetery talking to him and talking amongst themselves. So it's a way to reconcile these spirits that someone is perceiving with a very real materialist explanation that this person is hallucinating and these spirits are not materially present but it still takes them seriously as something that's very present in our minds. And so that's a way that realists were able to kind of reconcile spirits and hauntings with positivism. And so containing it as a psychological phenomenon is something that Dostoevsky did, and it's something that I argue here Mussorgsky is doing by having death approaching these people in a way that we can understand it to be how these people are imagining death approaching them. Wow, that's a very, very interesting and fantastic example. I think it's a wonderful example um, how we can join the fantasticism, the uh, outlandish nature of some of these things with the realism. Can you speak a little bit more um, on this topic of realism? This is sort of the idea that things don't exist unless they're sort of substantial, physical, measurable. Um, measurably sort of real in existence, yeah? Yeah, exactly. So that was the idea that took hold in Russia in this era, and people across all disciplines are trying to pursue it within their own areas. So it did put an emphasis on scientific inquiry, studies of the natural world, which Mussorgsky himself was very interested in. Um, and artists were pursuing this by depicting everyday life in realistic situations, writers by using everyday parlance in their dialogue writing. And music in particular took this sort of higher sense of realism approach to convey psychological truth as the best they could to try to put forward the emotions that they would see in the, the characters that are in their songs rather than the emotions of the composer. So the idea was to try to minimize the composer's input on it and to try to portray what the people in their songs would have been feeling. Now in practice, there is a lot of congruence between this and the romanticism that they were trying to oppose, but their outlook in approaching it was very, very different. Was there anything significant uh, about the, the time or the context in which Mussorgsky um, was uh, writing or composing this music that influenced uh, what the music ended up uh, being? So another current that was very much at this time alive in Russia was spiritualism. So while realism was the dominant accepted practice and outlook on the world, this in the 1870s there was also what has been turned been termed the spiritualist season, where, and especially in the aristocracy, people were interested in trying to have seances to summon the dead spirits. And realists were interested in this too. Everyone was very concerned about this. 
And so people who took a more realist outlook on this would participate and maybe try to test this out. And some of them were willing to say, well, ghosts, if we actually can summon a ghost, then that gives us evidence, hard evidence, that there is a spirit world. And so this was kind of experimental spiritualism. And then other people tried to take an approach that just realized that other people maybe believe this, but we should acknowledge it to caution them. And so all of these trends were kind of getting meshed together and people were having to reconcile them because they were both so powerful at the time. So I think uh, the, this song cycle being composed in that era gives us a, a great window into how one notable composer dealt with the two trends. So what are some of the things in um, Liz Gorski's music that have inspired you to make these observations? First off, I think the different guises that death takes um, is a very interesting feature of this, that death appears in a different form in each song that sort of responds to the circumstances and the identity of the dying person. So in the first song, I think it's a great example to show how Mazorgsky took this further and really agreed with, because he didn't write the text, this is in the text, but that he took this on in a realist way. So in this first song, The Lullaby, there's a dying infant and the mother can see death coming and death is kind of coming to almost act as a babysitter or substitute for the mother to lull the child into sleep death. And what Mazorgsky does here is actually have death come out musically from the same key that the mother was singing and then go into its own key. But to present it as the same sort of tonal origin, to me, I think we can understand it as, from a realist perspective as it coming out of her consciousness in that way. And then sort of she's splitting herself maybe to project something that she can't deal with as directly because she's so devastated. But I think that gives us a great window into the realist approach that we can see in the other songs as well. That's fascinating. Thank you very much, Rachel. Uh, so you're studying uh, for your PhD at McGill University? Yes, I am. That's wonderful. Uh, do you have any plans for the future after you complete your, your doctorate? I just want to keep researching music. I would love to teach. I would love to do a postdoc. Uh, there's a lot of fascinating material out there that I, I want to engage with. I'm, my focus is actually on pop music right now, and I want mm -hmm. to keep doing that, but also keep a foot in the art music world. In the classical world. Yeah. Well, what sorts of pop music are you researching? My dissertation is on the singer-songwriter Laura Nero, who okay. is a singer-songwriter from the late 60s into the mid-90s, and I'm working on queer aesthetics and genre in her music. Oh, wow. Very interesting. Thank you very much, Rachel. You've enlightened us with the, the research on Mazorsky, and you've also uh, tampered or told us a little bit more about the more uh, contemporary music, the pop and cultural music. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Welcome to GradCast. My name is Yaman Chen. I'm joined with my partner here, Roger Hudson, and we are coming to you live from Wuxan, the Western University Graduate Symposium of Music. And 
for this segment, our guest is Ryan. How are you doing, Ryan? Pretty good, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. Awesome. So you're from the University of Ottawa. You're pursuing your master's degree, that's right? I've just graduated. Just graduated. Summer. Right, okay. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, so can you tell us a little bit about what you uh, were presenting here at the symposium today? Yeah, so today I was uh, presenting on a music video uh, that was uh, created uh, for the Fleet Foxes song, The Shrine Argument. Uh, Fleet Foxes are kind of an indie folk band, new folk band. Uh, they go by a couple different labels, but um, this particular song was uh, an interesting one because the song and the music video seem to convey different stories or narratives. And so in my presentation, what I chose to look at was interactions between how the music, the uh, lyrics, and uh, the music video image itself, uh, how they interact despite telling different stories. Okay. Well, so real quick then, can you tell us a little bit uh, about the context of the music video? So like, what, what are the images being shown there? Yeah? yeah, of course. So I'll actually start by talking about what the song was intended to mean. Oh, yeah. Lyrics, just so you can kind of get the comparison. Right. So uh, the song was intended to be kind of a breakup saga. So it's chronicling the different events of a breakup between two people, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, fairly standard in, in popular music to have a song like that. Uh, the video, on the other hand, kind of is this elaborate stop motion work which uh, depicts the story of an elk after the death of its rider. And so it's got all these uh, crazy images of this elk traveling through a world being attacked by wolves and dragons. Uh, and so as you can tell, it's quite a bit different than the story of a breakup. And so this is where I wanted to go in and say, well, these are very different stories, but in which ways are they connected? And how can those connections maybe make this a more cohesive experience for the listener or viewer of the video? And how can it also change our interpretation of what we're seeing or hearing? So there's a there's a dissonance in, in the out, outstanding visual effects or the, the audio effects between them, but you, you're looking at more of the underlying themes that might connect uh, the video and the, and the music there. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and like you said, there definitely is a bit of a dissonance there, but there are like certain specific moments where maybe the lyrics and the image do match up. A certain lyric uh, conveys something that the video conveys. And so those particular moments really serve as anchor points between the song and the video and the two stories that, uh, that may appear to be quite different from uh, an outside perspective. Right, so each sort of part of this video plus music can help inform your understanding of the other part. In a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so if you, if you were to listen to the song independently or you were to you know, watch the video without any music, you right. would get two totally different experiences. Then when you put them together, you can say, well, maybe the music video is saying something about the lyrics that I didn't get just listening to the song, or maybe uh, listening to the song, you say, well, that brings out a meaning in the video that I wasn't aware of. And so uh, what I've tried to do with my research is kind of hone in on those moments and look at those uh, specific instances, and then you can kind of, you know, get a deeper understanding maybe, or at least a different interpretation of a work. So would you like to touch on some of those anchor points or those instances where you feel like uh, the, the music and the music video highlights a certain theme? Yeah, uh, so in particular I kind of broke down my analysis into three sections. Uh, the first was the musical form, the second was the lyrics, and the third uh, was instances of what's called musical diegesis. Uh, that's a term, yeah, that is used to refer to music that exists within the, the story world universe. So, uh, for instance, in film, there's many scenes where there's like a band playing in the background, for instance. Right. And that would be diegetic music because the music actually belongs to the, the story world of the film. 
whereas non-diegetic music would be you know, your classic soundtrack where you're not seeing any performers playing. So in the case of the shrine, uh, an argument for instance, um, there's a moment where you can see hands in the video playing a string instrument as in the song there's acoustic guitar finger picking going on. And so in doing that, for instance, you've got the visual representation of an auditory event. And so in that way, it's kind of creating that connection between the song and the video. So that's just an example of one instance of that. Wow, that's really neat. So, I mean, perhaps uh, this is part of my age, but like music videos and video in general is not something I generally think about when I think about music. Um, what is it that drew you to this topic, this sort of um, intersection between visual and auditory sort of? Yeah, well, I've always been really interested in this particular video because it's, a, it's kind of an interesting one, and the song itself is, is quite interesting as well. It runs for over eight minutes and goes through a number of different uh, distinct sections, and so it really was a unique video to look at. And I also think music video is becoming uh, increasingly one of the more common ways that uh, listeners of music are kind of receiving their music. Uh, I mean a lot of people go on YouTube and they that's how they you know get their songs right yeah. and so if the first link they come on is the music video they see the music video it just seems to be something that's very prevalent in uh, today's culture and it's uh, you know something to look at that you know is a wide-reaching uh, medium right now. And is there anything particular about the band Fleet Foxes that drew you to their work? Uh, a little bit of that is just personal bias because I'm a big fan of their music. Okay. Um, but with regards to this specific uh, music video, like I said, it's, uh, it's, it's something else. It's, it's quite unique in the music video world. Uh, a lot of music videos out there today are mostly performance-based or performer-based, so you're seeing images of the performer. Uh, it's a way of kind of bringing their image to the forefront for marketing purposes or just for uh, branding. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas this one, as I mentioned, is stop motion, so there's not even any images of the performers. Uh, it's very story driven, which is quite rare in music videos. Uh, and just uh, the music of Fleet Foxes, I've always found uh, a bit more interesting than maybe the standard uh, you know, pop group. They definitely draw from a lot of different influences, have very unique instrumentation. Uh, and so it just really provides a rich opportunity for analysis that you might not get in a lot of other uh, bands' work. So did the band um, have a lot of influence, a lot of say in how the music video was performed or created? Well, it's interesting because the video's director is actually the brother of the, uh, the band's primary songwriter. Okay. So uh, the song was written by a Robin Pecknold and the video's director is Sean Pecknold. Mm -hmm. And so he mentions that he was present for a lot of the recording of the albums for the Fleet Foxes. And so he has kind of an, you know, a close relationship with them. He's also the brother. Uh, and he's done a number of other music videos for the band too. So this wasn't the first time he's done it. Uh, that said, uh, according to Robin Pecknold, who is the song's uh, composer, he allows his brother to pretty much have free control over what he does with it. He says that he trusts his vision. So there wasn't actually a lot of uh, talk about, you know, what's going to happen, I want you to do this, can you do that? It was just kind of, here's the song, you know, do with it what you will, I guess. So. Fascinating. With the uh, different sectionalities or the topics that you drew on and the themes uh, within the music video and, 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 the, and the song itself, do, they have, do you think that they have any larger implications for society as a whole or for music as a whole? Well, I think... Uh, Anything that kind of makes you think about something differently has value. 
And so when uh, doing an analysis of something like this, obviously it's a very focused case study. It's not going to have huge, wide-ranging applications. But I do think it kind of uh, gives you an opportunity to look at how when you're seeing a video, you're maybe not aware of all of these different interactions between all the things going on. There's the lyrics, the music, the text, everything's kind of uh, interacting. And I think being able to gain a deeper appreciation of that allows you to, uh, to maybe understand the video a bit differently, appreciate it a bit differently, and uh, you can apply that to pretty much any other music video as well. And just, uh, yeah. Is this a, a line of research that you are interested in pursuing into the future? Are there other music videos that you would like to look at, or perhaps um, branching into movies, for example? Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential there. Uh, and especially like in music videos, as I mentioned, it's a very you know, uh, wide-reaching form of uh, media. It's, uh, it's highly accessed, mm -hmm. and yet there's not a ton of research that's been done on it yet. So I think it's definitely a, kind of an untapped uh, area for research. That's not to say no research has been done in it. There have been a, a few books here and there and many papers, but I think there's still a lot to be explored there. So it's something that I'd, uh, I'd definitely be interested in uh, looking into a bit further as well. Okay. Um, do you have any sort of personal favorite music videos? Uh, that's a tough question. Oh yeah? Um, I find uh, for most of the music I listen to, it's uh, it, my main genre focus is progressive rock, which is mm -hmm. uh, a genre that's not particularly well known for its music videos. So uh, with the music I listen to, I don't usually have that kind of exposure. Uh, that said, uh, even some of the other Fleet Foxes music videos that are out there are one, some of my personal favorites. Uh, they just released one for their song called Fool's Errand, which features like interpretive dancing and very cool imagery and, and stuff like that. So I'm always uh, watching these videos, but it's, uh, you know, there's a lot to take in. It seems there's a particular interest between uh, the song and the imagery don't particularly match up uh, on a visual scale. Yeah, exactly, and that's what I was trying to uh, to explore with this paper was seeing like you know what's going on there, what can we do with that? And, yeah, very interesting. Oh, excellent! Thanks very much for coming down to Wugsam this year and for sharing your work with us. Thanks a lot.